Hi, everyone. Headcase is back in action with season two. And to kick it off, we have a very special guest who I'm honored to have on and really excited for all of you to get to know. So, Miriam Feldman, welcome to Headcase. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. And you are a mental health advocate, an author, a new author, and an amazing parent. So I'm thrilled you reached out to me. I've read up a lot about your story and what you've done for the community, and I'm pretty blown away by it all. So I'm really excited for you to share your story with everyone so they can hear too. Oh, so, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, just tell tell us a little bit about you and before we fully dive in and what led you to reach out to me. Okay, well, I'm, um, I'm a mom and I have four adult children and I have three daughters and my 33-year-old son has schizophrenia. Okay. And when he, when that all first started 12, 14 years ago, it sort of propelled my life in a direction that I didn't expect at all. And um, the first years were just madness, literally trying to hold everything together. But eventually when I got my footing, I realized that I had to start working in the mental health world for advocacy because the system is so broken and it's so difficult for people to get the help that they need. And um, I'm kind of a pit bull as a mom and Mm. in the world in general. So I was able to really, really fight. But I thought about how hard it is for me just to keep us above water. Yeah. You know, what about all the people who don't have somebody advocating for them? That's so true. So what... So now... uh, Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just saying, so now now I wrote... um, So eventually I wrote a book. I wrote a memoir called He Came In With It, which is going to be out in June of 2020 by Turner Publishing Company. And it's actually available now on Amazon for pre-order. And um, since I've been doing the book and putting my toe into social media and all that's going on there, I found this vast world of people doing all kinds of amazing and exciting things, of which you are one of them. And that's how I reached out to you. That's amazing. I'm so excited to read your book. How long did did it take you to, to write that? I'm sure it's, it's not an easy thing to write a memoir, especially after all you've gone through yeah you know I I had it in the back of my mind that I was going to do it I'm actually a painter I've supported myself as a painter my whole life and but I used to write in college and I sort of had an ability to write and I always thought I would write something and uh, as we got further into this whole odyssey I started thinking that's what I should do I should write my story because the thing that is so impossible about this is when it first happens, you're so isolated and you feel so alone. And, you know, you have to remember for me, this was 15 years ago when it started. So back 15 years ago, there was so much less dialogue in the zeitgeist about any of this. And I used to sit in my house in my middle-class neighborhood in LA and look out the window and think, I'm the only one who has this dark, ugly secret inside my house. Everybody else is living these fresh, clean lives, mm-hmm. and I'm just in this horrible, shameful, dark place. Right. And to carry that 
in addition to the fact that your son is seriously ill, is just ridiculous. Right. And, you know, now I look back at it and I realize everybody's dealing with mental health issues. There's not a person that I talk to who doesn't have a family member or somebody close to them who is dealing with it. So Absolutely. the idea that you're alone and you're the only one is ridiculous. And I decided I'm just going to tell the story, you know, no holds barred, and um, put it out there in the world. I think that's incredible. It's very brave, but it's also so helpful for people who are going through that, who exactly were in your position and feel super alone and don't know what to do, especially those those newer parents who have their kids just growing into these into themselves and the mental illnesses that they don't understand yet. And it really does take like a really long time to figure out first what is going on with your child. And then on top of that, how, how to help them. Yeah. You know, you, in the beginning, the thing I always say is if you make a list of the serious red flags for serious mental illness mm -hmm. and you made the list of normal teenage behavior, right. they'd be virtually the same list. Yeah, exactly. And so you go along and you're thinking, okay, well, they're all crazy. They're all crazy right. when they're teenagers. And, and, you know, so you think, okay, well, this is just normal and this is what's happening. And, you know, there are indicators and there are signs that, you know, I look back on it now and I wish I had been more informed because there are things that you can identify and deal with early that can make the path easier. Right. And it's helpful to know what they are. So what was your experience like from the very beginning of when your son started to struggle with behavioral issues and mental health issues? What, when exactly did that begin? Well, you know, um, Nick was the golden boy. Mm -hmm. He, he was and is prodigiously talented as a painter. Now I have, four kids and I'm the painter and I don't say all four of them were prodigiously talented, <laughs> but he was. Yeah. And, uh, and he just, he had the whole, you know, the world was just his oyster. He was good looking and a good student and talented and funny. And he just, he just had it all. Mm -hmm. And so there were no indications of anything till he hit his teenage years. And then, you know, like I said, he, he started with, the usual crazy teenage behavior, but then he didn't quite pull himself up out of it. And one of the things that was an indicator that I should have known, I mean, we beat ourselves up retroactively, but you know, I wish I had known was, you know, he started using drugs. He started smoking pot. He started using drugs. And I dealt with all of that, you know, according to how I dealt with it with all my kids, but self-medicating is a very definite sign of nascent mental illness. Right. And it didn't make things better. It made things worse because marijuana in particular with schizophrenia can actually hasten its arrival. Yeah. You know, it doesn't cause schizophrenia, but it sure doesn't help. Right. So, so there was that, yeah. and then he just started. He just started not doing well in school, and then alienating himself from friends and family. And he, he had a lot of anxiety and, um, you know, we went along and first he, he finally he had actually he had a suicide attempt. And it was what well, it was deemed an inauthentic attempt, which is a term the doctors use, which mm -hmm. means 
he didn't really mean to kill each other, kill himself, but he was trying to get attention. But after that happened, then we started with doctors and psychiatrists. And first they um, diagnosed anxiety and then depression. And then eventually they called it bipolar. And then finally it was schizophrenia. Oh, wow. And you said in one of your blog posts, I read that he was, he's been hospitalized a few times due to that as well. Yeah, that was, you know, that was later, that was after the diagnosis when he was, you know, he was diagnosed schizophrenia just around when he turned 20. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, yeah, there were several hospitalizations, you know, uh, schizophrenia is a thought disorder. Mm -hmm. And so they, they become really detached from reality. They're delusional thoughts. There are, uh, auditory hallucinations, paranoia, and um, a few times resulted with him being in the hospital. Yeah. So how did it, how did your other children react to this and deal with that? I, mean, I can't imagine it's easy having a sibling going through that, but also you're a teenager too, and you're, you have your own issues. And then, you know, all your parents' attention is sort of thrown on to to the one sibling, because you really, they do need the most attention. Well, you've nailed it there. That's exactly what happened. And it's really kind of tragic for the whole family. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm really proud that we all hung in there and we all fought through this thing and we're still a good, strong, screwed up, but strong family that's committed to each other, you know. It, it can tear apart a family. Mental, serious mental illness is like a gale force hurricane that just blows through your life. And anything that's not nailed firmly down is gone. Right. And, you know, as I went to different um, groups and things like that, so many of the marriages end up in divorce. And it just it destroys families. And for the other, for the girls, his older sister it wasn't so bad on a day-to-day basis because she was already in college when right. it started. His younger two sisters, it was tougher. They were 11 and 13 or so when this all started. And um, it was pretty devastating. Yeah. His uh, The middle sister, he was her idol. He was her true north. You know, she just, right. she, she followed him and, and learned from him and losing him is something that, Losing him as he was is something that I don't think she'll ever get older and uh, get over. And for the little one, it was very difficult because she just became marginalized. She said, you know, now that she's an adult and we talk about it, she just felt like she was invisible. She didn't exist because all the energy and all the attention went toward him. Yeah. And those are really prime ages for young girls too, 12 and 13. And really when you're coming into your womanhood sort of. So I can imagine it's really difficult. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff in the house, too, a lot of crazy behavior, and um, honestly, a lot of fighting between his father and me, because we just didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, all this is in the book. You know, when I sat down to write the book, I just decided, okay, am I going to write some sort of sanitized, pretty version of this, or am I going to just, like, let loose? And I just decided, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be real. Right. And so I don't come out looking like any big hero in this book. It's pretty embarrassing, a lot of it, but it's real. I mean, I just put it out there. And I think for other mothers in particular, 
it'll be really helpful for them because it, it, it shows a vulnerable, not perfect, struggling mother figure, not some sort of, you know, pretend superwoman. Yeah, I mean, nothing is is perfect. And I think it's it's doing an injustice to sugarcoat a struggle as severe as that for so long. It's not like the ending is going to be some package tied in a bow. So I think it's really admirable that you just told the truth and really let it all hang out. Yeah, I had to send the book like to each of the kids and then my husband to sit down and read it because it's like, okay, guys, you know, buckle it's up. All in here. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I told them if there's anything that anybody didn't want in there, I would take it out. And you know, this is like what a great family I have. You know, they all just basically, I mean, my youngest one just said to me, you know, there's some stuff in here that isn't exactly as I would tell it, it isn't exactly what I remember, but this is your story and you're telling your story and tell it. Yeah. And they've all basically said that. So That's I, was, incredible. I was gratified. And how does Nick feel about the book? Well, that's more complicated. Right. Um, he knows about it. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw in the stuff that I sent you, but the, um, the cover of the book, yeah, that's a self portrait that he did when he was 16. I saw it. it was, so, it's incredible. He's so talented. Yeah. Yeah, he, he really he is. He's actually doing very well right now, and he's talking about starting to paint again. So oh, we're cool. hopeful. He In the last years, he's been, he colors in coloring books. He, yeah. he colors in like children's coloring books. So he keeps drawing, but he I think it was very daunting to him probably, you know, as a painter, I can yeah. see this, go into that place in himself where he's, you know, mining those images and those ideas that are water order in his head. Right. But um but so as far as the book, he you know, he supports me in it, but he's he's kind of detached from our reality to a degree. Honestly, I think that if he sat down was able to sit down and concentrate and read through the whole book, I don't know how thrilled he would be that right. I was telling the story. Yeah, but the honest truth is, he knows about it. He's given me a stamp of approval. He's happy that his book, that his illustration, is being used. And you know, if he were in a place where he was better, to the extent that he could read that book and get mad at me for writing it, yeah, I'll take the getting mad because right. it would mean he's better. Yeah, <laughs> you know absolutely. I mean? So, so, and and I feel that the importance of telling the story supersedes any of our personal desires here. I just want this story to be out there because I want people to know that other people are going through this. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially with an illness like schizophrenia. It ha- It is so stigmatized and not many people know about it and really what it is. And I think people are really afraid of it and afraid to talk mm-hmm. about it. So I think that you're the fact that you're really shedding the light on everything and that even though it gets really muddy and and it's really hard, you're able to still stand together as a family unit unit. And I think that's pretty amazing. 
Well, the stigma and especially the mystery around schizophrenia, because, you know, now people are in the last years talking more about these mental illnesses. But schizophrenia, I always say it's like the bastard child of the mental health world. Mm -hmm. It's, they, you know, they, they just have no understanding of it. Scientifically, they don't understand how the medications work. And there's so much fear around it. And then you have things like these mass shootings and... Yeah. Then politicians getting up and talking about how we have this is a mental health problem. And mm -hmm. yes, we have a mental health problem in this country. But, you know, the way that the statistics break down, yes, probably every mass shooter has mental health issues. Mm -hmm. But the percentage of people with serious mental illness like schizophrenia who become who hurt anybody is minuscule. They're right. far more likely to be hurt than to hurt anybody. Absolutely, so it yeah. gives this skewed view and people are really afraid. Yeah. It's it's all projected, I feel like, from T V and movies and things, these images that people just automatically assume, oh my gosh, if you have schizophrenia, you're gonna kill me or you're really dangerous. And it's really sad that that that's the way people think about it. You know, I'm very open about it. I have been from day one. You know, yeah. at first I was sitting in the living room, well, maybe not day one, but soon after sitting right. in the living room, peering out the window, I went to a NAMI workshop. NAMI is the National Alliance for, Mental Ill for the Mentally Ill. I'm sure you know that. Yes. And, um, and they have, um, they do a thing that's called Family to Family, which is a 12-week educational seminar. I'm not big on support groups. But this was just for me personally, but this was something that was gave me such an incredible amount of information, you know, yeah. and um, and and gave me, you know, it, it gave me tools that I needed to deal with this. And um, they talked about uh, talked about uh, stigma early on. And it was something I hadn't really even thought about. I mean, mental illness just was not on my radar. You know, we don't have it in the family. Mm -hmm. And I spent, you know. 20 years of raising kids obsessing about cancer, car accidents, and child abductions. Right. And then out of left field comes schizophrenia. Yeah. You know, so I had, you know, it was a big learning curve. And, um, and I just decided, okay, screw it. This is going to be hard enough on everybody. I am not going to worry about stigma. And from right. day one, I'm, and I'm really, really open about it. And, um, it's, you know, my, my little daughter used to do this imitation at parties and things. This is mom, and she'd pick up the phone and she'd say, Hi, I'm Miriam Feldman, and my son has schizophrenia. <laughs> but that was kind of what I was doing. I was just yeah. advocating, advocating on the phone, seeking information. And, you know, I, I don't want your people listening to feel like I'm, I'm uh, betraying Nick's privacy. Right. Because I don't do that. But there are circumstances, you know, just recently, and I mean, he's a grown man now. We were, we'd gone to a gas station and he opened the car door and he banged the car door, banged the truck next to us. Right. Before I could get out of the car, it was some good old boy and he was really pissed off and he started yelling at me because all he saw was a grown man who banged his car and was just standing there sheepishly and not saying anything. Right. And he really laid into him. And I, you know, ran around the car and I said, Nick, just go inside the thing and you know pick your stuff i'll be in in a minute and yeah. when he was inside i said to the man quietly i said listen i'm his mother and he has schizophrenia 
and he's not connected to the world in the same way we are. You right. know, I'm really sorry he banged your door. I don't think there's any damage. Um, and this guy's whole demeanor changed. Yeah. And I wouldn't have done that in front of Nick because I feel like that would be maybe embarrassing to Nick. Mm-hmm. But I was happy that I did it privately because I think that next time something like that happens before he goes off like a rocket, the guy might think, hmm, maybe something's going on with this Yeah, guy. you really have to consider every situation before you react. So that's, that's really Yeah, and it's just having that awareness. And the more I'm saying schizophrenia and the more I'm talking about it, it, it makes it palatable. It makes it understandable. And if people want to talk to me or ask me questions or, you know, I'll talk to them because it's just we all need this knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. These people are human beings, you know, and they deserve a place in our world. And Mm -hmm. the way that our system and the way that our culture is set up is there's nowhere for them to stand. There's nowhere for them to live. There's nowhere for them to interact. And they deserve a place in this world, just like everybody else. And I'll be damned if I'm going to hide because I won't. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. You've great tenacity. (laughs) No, I love it. Um, (laughs) But so, so you... Basically, are you're learning about this illness while advocating, and it's almost like two two areas that you're really fighting for because you're kind of fighting to understand, and then you're fighting to normalize it because it is a common thing. It, it's it's more common than we know, so it is important to be you know mindful when you are interacting with a stranger on the street because you don't know what mental illness they may have or what struggles they have so it makes you more empathetic but it's like these two worlds that you're you're fighting for and fighting for people to help you with but also understand and it's i can't imagine it's easy you know trying to trying to figure out a disease that is so unknown to people even the doctors who are trying to help you don't really know that much about it. And I feel like each person... It's like it's learning different. a completely new language. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a language that doesn't exist. You right. Have to, you have to decipher it. Yeah, exactly. If you've met other parents of schizophrenic children, their stories are probably different from yours even, and the symptoms their child experiences might be different. So it's yeah, that's that's already difficult kind of to pinpoint what could be the reason behind the illness and how it comes about. Yeah, you know, as a mother, the thing that, I, you know, every single uh, situation is different and, and it and it presents itself. I always say schizophrenia is bespoke to each person. It's a yeah. completely different disease with each different person. You know, I was recently in L.A. Uh, attending a panel with uh, Ellen Sachs, who is a friend of mine, and she's the one who wrote The Center Cannot Hold. She's a um, right. she has schizophrenic. She's a law professor at USC. And the person that I had gone there also to meet because I was so blown away by her book is Esme Wang, who wrote The Collected Schizophrenias, which came out this year. Mm-hmm. And she's a young woman. My guess is she's maybe 30-ish. And, um, and she has schizophrenia also. And she wrote this book, which I highly recommend because it's such an insight into yeah. what it's like 
for, for somebody who's articulate and, and self-aware. Because the thing with schizophrenia is a lot of times there's something called anisognosia, which is the inability to understand that you're sick. Mm-hmm. And so there's no awareness about it. But I look at people like Esme and Ellen. And I mean, it's a law professor. It's a published writer. Mm-hmm. And I look at my son, who's a beautiful, wonderful human being, but he's very childlike. Yeah. And, and when he's not doing well, he's crazy. I mean, he acts crazy. He hears voices. He's not aware. Mm-hmm. And I think, how can they have schizophrenia and Nick have schizophrenia? It's like, yeah. how can it be the same thing? It's it's mystifying. Yeah, it's really it really shows you that there's so many layers to it that you just don't understand. Yeah, and so you have to. And the thing is, then you have to just accept that you don't understand. And I know this sounds corny, but mm-hmm. it's like you got to just let love lead you and right. I mean love in its biggest most universal most powerful sense you know Absolutely. not hallmark cards because you really never know wh- what can happen in the future either and one day it could just click yeah. and things could just work out better for him he could start painting again and really get in his own groove of like what what helps him you know, one of the things that, you know, so the schizophrenia is different with everybody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's a different story with everybody, but a consistent story, certainly among mothers, is the yearning to fix it, mm-hmm. the drive to fix it, and the sense that we are responsible. Right. I mean, by and large, right. we grew them inside of our bodies. You know, to some degree, I feel like I'm responsible for this. I grew him. I brought him to this world. I feel guilty. I, you know, I spend nights lying in bed and and reliving every minute of his life and trying to figure out, okay, when did it happen? You know, when he fell off the bed and bumped his head when he was a baby, was that it? You know, you go down these, these dark alleys trying to figure it out. But when it comes right down to it, all that that can do that's positive is just to reaffirm and re-cement your commitment to this other human being right. that I'm here for him and I'm not giving up and moving towards some acceptance. And it's a tricky thing because what, you know, it's so unknowable that what exactly are you accepting, but you have to accept it. You have to accept that this is how it is now. And that's the big turning point, I think. Yeah. And just accepting the reality that you're in and not, you know, it it will drive you crazy if you keep wishing things were different and putting yourself in a different situation or imagining yourself in a different situation going down those rabbit holes because you really will not get anywhere and then it'll just make you completely unhappy. Yeah, and, you know, um, not only that, it's it's accepting that this is who he is. Yeah. You know, the very the title of the book, he, he came in with it. Mm-hmm. That's what that's about. You know, when I, um, uh, you know, I was so much was, oh, you know, this isn't how it was supposed to go. Right. You know, he was this wonderful, amazing boy with all this potential. This isn't how it was supposed to go. And very early on, uh, I used to lock myself in the bathroom at night and run the shower and cry because I didn't want the two younger girls to hear. And, you know, that 
sidebar, that was a stupid thing to do anyway because they knew what was going on and pretending like everything was okay only made them think they were crazy. So right. my advice to other mothers is forget that anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, one night I came out of the shower out of the bathroom and I was busted by my 11 year old there I was obviously crying and she said mom mom you know what's the matter and I you know I couldn't pretend I wasn't crying and I said I'm crying because I miss your brother and she said to me what do you mean you miss Nick Nick's not gone Nick's still here and I said yeah but he's not who he was supposed to be yeah and she looked at me and she said yeah he is it's just not what you thought. Wow, she's wise. <laughs> and, you know, that has informed me. That was a turning point for me. And I returned to that. I mean, that was she's 26 now, so that was a while ago. And I returned to that often and go, okay. Yeah. You know, he's who he was supposed to be. It may not be what I thought, but this is who he is. This is how he came to us. And we have to love him and we have to accept him. As he is, not that we don't want to help him and try and improve him and try and help him recover, but this is who he is. Right. This is, and that's the thing with these mental illnesses. It's like, this is who these people are. And we have to learn acceptance of that and and build a place into our society where they can exist. It's not fair that they're marginalized and that, you know, basically the de facto mental health Facilities in our country are the streets and the prisons. Yeah. That's appalling. So I know you you blog a lot and you write for Bring Change to Mind. Right. Tell me a little bit about that and how you got um, involved in the organization. Right. It's Glenn Close's organization, Bring Change to Mind, and it's an advocacy and educational nonprofit around mental illness. Uh, Glenn has a sister, Jessie, who has bipolar, and Jessie's son has schizoaffective disorder. And when all this started, I'm not positive about the years, but I think it was about 15 years ago or so, she created this nonprofit. And they do fantastic um, public service announcements. I would advise everybody to take a look at the website and look at some of these PSAs that they do because they're just great. Yeah. I mean, I guess because she's going close, she's got all this uh, resources in terms of production and everything, and they're really wonderful. And then they also do all kinds of advocacy and education. In the recent years, they've started to focus a lot in on colleges and high schools because that's this big area that's been neglected that is a time and a place where the outcome of mental illness diagnoses can be drastically altered mm. with early intervention and with good help. And there's so many people in college who deal with this. And, and traditionally with schizophrenia, definitely, and this was the case with Nick, that the they have their first psychotic break when they go to college. I mean, yeah. That's something that it just happens. And so now that they're starting to educate and talk about it on the campuses, um, it's a great opportunity for better outcomes for people. So I right. found out about them. You know, I used to, I still do. You know, late at night, I get on the computer and I just start looking, looking. There's, you know, the answer has to be out there somewhere. I yeah. still have not quite accepted I'm not going to fix this. Right. And, um, and so I came across Bring Change to Mind many years ago. 
and these PSAs that just like were so moving to me. And, um, I just got in contact with them and started talking to them and eventually, uh, created a relationship with them. And so now I do this blog and I'm on their advisory council and, um, I do events and uh, I do speaking engagements and things. And it's just every time I do this, you know, I did one for them, um, about a year ago in Los Angeles where they had rented a theater and they were doing a a fundraiser and there was a bunch of, a woman had put it together who just had interest in mental health reform. And she had, she was an actress and so she had actors and artist friends. And I did, um, I read a piece that I wrote that's not very mainstream and pretty, it's pretty rough and pretty intense. And I was, nervous to do it and I read it and I thought I hope this is going to be okay it's a little bit out of the envelope and the response was so incredible and every time I do these things I get people coming to me and saying oh my god it sounds like me talking you know I haven't heard anybody say the things that I've been thinking and not only that with my social media because now I'm doing um I'm doing Instagram and if anybody's interested I'm at Mimi the Riveter like Rosie the Riveter. Yeah, I love Mimi that name. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and what I do there is I just, you know, Instagram is a whole other animal. So I don't get into, you know, uh, so much depth in there. But I do a lot of, you know, just inspirational stuff and ideas about mental health. And I've gotten so much response from younger people. Yeah. People my kids age who say, wow, I wish you were my mom. You know, I wish my mom understood like this. And it's so moving to strike a chord in that area, too. So I've got all these friends now that I hang out with and talk to or younger people going through this stuff. And it's really, it's it's educational for me. And it's really wonderful to go across the generation so that I'm not just talking to moms. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because on those days where you feel like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore or nothing I do is working or helping. You really, you really are helping more than just your own family. You're helping other families and other people. So it kind of lights a fire and lets you, it it keeps you going and keeps. Yeah. And you know, I'm not exactly, you know, I'm not, you know, this, uh, I'm not a saint. <laughs> right. Like, I'm doing this because it does. It helps me. You yeah. know what I mean? I have a friend who is an alcoholic and she, she, you know, she sponsors a lot of, uh, AA people. And I said to her, you know, how do you do this? You've got like four or five women you're sponsoring at any given time. And, you know, that's a big, uh, time commitment. Yeah. And she says, you know, I don't do it for them. <laughs> do it for me. It's what keeps me sober. And I feel like it's what keeps me keeps me gives me perspective and also the more people I talk to the more I realize as awful as this has been you know and I mean I would I would give the skin off of my body if I could make him not have schizophrenia but as awful as it's been it's been incredibly enriching in so many ways and the human connections and the richness of the relationships I see in my family and the, the siblings and the devotion and the mm-hmm. fierce protectiveness that his sisters have for him. You know, I don't worry about what's going to happen when I die. Right. And that's 
you know, that may sound dramatic, but that's like a big issue for people with kids. Yeah, that's a you, comforting what thing the hell to know. Is happen? Yeah, that's extremely comforting to yeah. know that you're in. Yeah. he'll be in good hands. I don't worry about him. I don't even have to talk to them about it. I right. know they'll take care. Yeah, and boy, to have that is incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you really do learn so much, and it there is sort of a silver lining to everything, despite how dark and how hard things can get. There really is a silver lining, and it's always some sort of lesson. I feel like we learn in whatever it is we go through, because like, what doesn't kill you really does make you stronger. Well, yeah, and you know, it's a richness, because it's... I feel like there's a direct correlation between as the horrible things that you've experienced, as bad as they are, there's a, there's a equally amazing thing that happens. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, I would never, I would never choose to have done this at the expense of my son's brain, but I am such a better person than I was when this all started. Yeah. And, and I'm just a better human being and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm more compassionate and less selfish. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I feel like I have a richer life. I mean, yeah. I, it, I know it sounds so weird to say that, but it, it you know, it, it does, you, you get to go into a deeper place in your living. Yeah. You really you don't take things for granted and you have a totally new perspective. So you live your life in a much deeper way, I think, than people who, don't have any experience with mental illness or or don't even talk about it would otherwise. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think that there's a whole, you know, the whole spectrum of what it means to be human. Yeah. And, and, you know, we sort of take this part of it and say, okay, these are normal people and these other people on the fringes are the misfits and, you know, don't have a place. And again, I mean, I, and you know, I'm not just talking about mental illness. Yeah. There's so many marginalized people. And I mean, it's made me see it and think about it in a way that I never did. And it's like this world belongs to all of us. Right. Absolutely. So what are some ways that you de-stress and help your own mental health? Because I'm sure it can't be easy when you're constantly just as a parent in general, but then a parent of mental illness and all of that. It can't be easy for you not to just get completely stressed out all the time. So what do you do to cope with your your own stress? Well, yeah, it, it has, as my husband's often uh, happy to tell me, I age 20 years in 10 years. <laughs> Can you stop reminding me of that? But um, I, <laughs> I, um, what happened with me is I'm kind of a type A person, you might be able to tell. And, you know, I've got a real motor in me. And mm-hmm. so when this first started, I was just like, you know, shoving down all the feelings and I was just going to, I was going to solve it and fix it. And then when I realized that that wasn't working, um, I reached a point maybe eight or nine years in mm-hmm. where everything had gotten kind of stable. Yeah. It was on medication. The girls were doing okay. My marriage hadn't gotten destroyed. It was still at a house, you know, yeah. but I felt like I was just dead, you know, like there was just nothing. I felt right. like, okay, now I just have to keep the whole machine going till I get old and die. Right. And it, it just, it was not a great feeling. 
And so um, I basically sort of just wandered into the local yoga studio. And this is, again, you know, years ago before it became quite this phenomenon it is right, right. now. Just the old funky yoga studio in my neighborhood. And I thought, okay, well, I'll get some exercise. And so I started doing that. And then I also, somebody, a friend of mine dragged me to a transcendental meditation teacher, which is also something that I never thought I could even sit still for 20 minutes, let alone become a meditator. But, you know, maybe because so many of my preconceptions and so many of my ideas and beliefs that I had held on to for so long had been demolished. There was a lot of empty space inside of me and there was room for some new ideas. And I, you know, while I would have dismissed all of this as, you know, woo woo, silly, hippy dippy stuff Mm -hmm. in the past, there was, you know, I was open. And so I went in and I started doing those two things and I meditated and it's been, you know, at least a decade. I meditate every day and I practice yoga every day. And, um, you know, like serious yoga, I'm 64 years old now and I can hold a handstand in the middle of the room. I mean, I can do, and, and I do it every day. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's brought me, I mean, I still have grief and I have sadness and I have frustration, but I'm a pretty happy person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not a stressed out person. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm energetic and I do a lot of things, but I don't do a lot of stress. I don't right. have a lot of stress. And I, I think it's the yoga and the meditation practice. That's I've heard, I've heard incredible things about, um, transcendental meditation in particular in yeah, comparison to other it, meditations. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's super simple, and I've heard it really does like invigorate you and make you awake and alive for like a second wind, almost like you had a nap. Yeah, yeah. It's I can't. I mean, and again, it's not anything that I thought I would ever do. Right. But it's like you just get your ass in the chair twice a day for twenty minutes, and you close your eyes, and whatever happens, that's your meditation. Yeah. And if you don't have like crazy expectations about it and you just commit to it and do it. Um, it changes the way you move through the world. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely gonna have to try that. That, That's amazing. (laughs) I think that's important though. The low expectations going into it, even when you get into a workout routine, just don't, don't think so much ahead about the end result. You have to just embrace the journey as, as you go every day. Yeah, and that's the whole thing about yoga too. It's 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 not about the result. It's not as much as our society would have you believe. Now it's about the yoga, but it's right. not. It's about going to your mat every day, and yeah. then, you know the sutra says, "Go to your mat every day, and all will be revealed." Yeah. And it's really true. And I don't even know what what it is that's been revealed, but. It has. Right. I mean, it it keeps your body moving, too, which is always important. Yes, absolutely. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for sharing this story. It's so incredible. Thank you. I'm happy to. I would love to have you back on after your book is out and to hear about, you know, everyone's responses to it because... I can't wait to read it myself. I think it's going to be something really special and really moving. 
Well, listen, I would love to. And um, if uh, email me your address and I'll have them send you an advance reader copy. Oh, I would love that so much. Thank you. I'll do that. Can I do one more little pitch for it? Of course. So if anybody wants the book, what I have learned um, as a first-time author is that pre-orders are everything, and they determine the success of the book. So if you're interested, you can go on Amazon, and you put in Miriam Feldman. He came in with it. And you can pre-order the book, and they'll send it out to you right when it drops in June. And um, I would appreciate it. Yeah, and I'll definitely promote the links for you on my social media as well and on um the podcast description. Well, it's so been you, great you to meet everything. you, Stephanie, and it's thank so you nice for what you. you do. I think that your podcast is just great, and it has such an array of interesting subjects. Oh, thank you it's so much. It's really helping a lot of people, I'm sure. Oh, that's that's the hope. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. All, All right. right. We'll, we'll be in touch. Okay, great. Okay, bye.